you to uh, those involved in Stephen ministry. Big thank you to Tabitha and the worship team for leading us so excellently. Um, happy summer, everybody. It's summer. My name's Andrew, and uh, I want to invite you to get a Bible out. Um, we're going to begin the ministry of the Word this morning. We are continuing our series in Luke, and we are considering the first part of, uh, of Jesus' teaching. Because up to this point in Luke, if you've been journeying with us, you'd, you'd know that we've been seeing Jesus doing a lot of things. Uh, he's been healing people. He's been driving out demons. But you probably uh, noticed that Luke has said that he's, Jesus was teaching, but we haven't actually heard, like, what is he teaching? And so today we get to get into that. Um, and so just, you know, previously on Luke catching us up last week, we just saw a story where Jesus was on a mountainside and he uh, called to himself his disciples and he chose from those disciples 12 apostles and Pastor Nikki explored how, how Jesus is making a new family that's, that's gonna carry his gospel that he's gonna send to share the, the good news and his love with others. And at this point, just after they come down the mountain, you'll remember that a lot of people come to Jesus. There's crowds, there's people from Judea and Jerusalem and even people from Tyre and Sidon which was like Gentile country from outside of Israel. And they come to him with great need and he heals and cures them. And Luke even dramatically says that like power was coming from Jesus, healing them all, which is so cool. So I want you to keep that context in mind because it frames his teaching. And it tells us that Jesus liberates people by healing and delivering them, but he also liberates and heals them through teaching. Teaching is part of that work. In his teaching, he invites people into the reality of the kingdom and shows them how to live in the way of that kingdom, how to cultivate an awareness of God's reign in your life. And that is profoundly healing. Think about uh, somebody who has had a heart attack. Someone who has had a heart attack doesn't just go to the hospital, recover, and then go back home and live life as they used to. The doctor gives them a set of instructions, right? Eat well, exercise, get moving, like daily. And these instructions are profoundly healing because without those instructions, what's gonna happen? This person's gonna end up back in the hospital after a given amount of time. That's kind of how Jesus' teaching works, together with his healing. They're working toward the same end of putting our lives back together in the kingdom and empowering us to live in a way that lines up with who God made us to be, all right? So we're gonna dive into Luke chapter six, uh, verses 20 to 26. Please do have a Bible open. Uh, and if you're using a pew Bible, I can tell you what page we're on, just in case you're not familiar with how to navigate your, your way around one of these things yet. It's on page 837. Okay, so we're gonna read that passage together, we're gonna pray, and then we're gonna explore it. In Luke 6, verses 20 to 26. It says, looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, 
for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich for you will have already so for, sorry for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Why don't we pray? Holy Spirit, we acknowledge your presence in this room, and even so, we ask you to come afresh and fill us and illumine our minds and our hearts to receive the word of Christ for us this morning. And would it result in life transformation and engagement in mission and a yieldedness and a trust to you as never before. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. What we just read is actually extremely simple, right? It's simple for us to understand, but it's extremely hard to embrace, don't you think? It's simple to understand because these are like really simple words with a clear message, right? This kind of person is blessed, but woe to this kind of person. (laughs) And people have been talking like that for a long time. People, every culture in every age has a way of, of, of telling us, this is the good life. You know, these are the blessed people. It's actually all over the book of Psalms in the Bible. The Psalms start in Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. And there are many times in the Psalms that have this way of speaking. In our culture today, we might wanna kind of do an analysis and say, what's the good life? What do people think is the good life? You know, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the influencers, blessed are those with 100,000 followers on Instagram. Blessed are the wealthy, the comfortable, and the satisfied. Blessed are the popular, the beautiful, the trendsetters, right? We get this way of talking, but it's hard to embrace because what Jesus says here is completely upside down. The people Jesus says are blessed are the very people the world throws away as unimportant and useless. And it's hard to embrace these words because Jesus is pulling off an enormous reversal that challenges our natural way of thinking about ourselves and the world and the people around us, even our way of thinking about God. I came across an artist lately who, who does something really cool. Her name is Sayaka Gans. I think she's Japanese, Sayaka. And she takes garbage. She takes the stuff that people have thrown out and she makes beautiful things with it. Check it out. So what she does is is, is she reclaims refuse, right? 
uh, and she fashions it into something new. She, she gives it a new environment, right? She, it's, it's removed from the garbage heap. It's brought into her studio. She gives it a new purpose. And she shines a light on it in a particular way so that we can see the beauty of this new creation. Check it out. See like the fork in there and the, the plastic coat hangers from you know, the store that you get and you just throw out because they're really flimsy. She's done that, it's really cool. And this kind of stunning reversal is a bit like what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is taking the light of the kingdom of God and, and he's shining it on the poor, on the hungry, on teary-eyed rejects, and he makes them important. So very simply this morning, we're gonna camp out in these blessings and woe woes and we're going to just take a look at how do we understand them so that we can embrace them and then we're going to look at three ways that this text might apply to our lives. So what is Jesus saying with these blessings and woes? I want you to look carefully at the first two words of each blessing. What does he say? He says, blessed are you. Blessed are you you. Is, is Jesus asking a prayer that these people would be blessed? No. Blessed are you. Um, is Jesus setting out demands and commands for people to meet? No. Blessed are you. Jesus is saying this kind of person is blessed. And what he means by that is that they're fortunate that they have an enviable position, a position that people look at and they go, man, I want to be like that person. And in the age of social media, we know exactly what that feels like. But big surprise, the fortunate are the poor. Just, just the poor. Matthew's gospel, uh, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that uh, the bless, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's no wonder that Matthew's version is way more popular than Luke's, right? Poor in spirit, that's something I, I can take that, I can embrace that. It sounds more spiritual, it's more abstract and theoretical. It's more about the feeling in my heart than about the actual details of my life. But Luke's Jesus says, blessed are the actually poor which surely includes being poor in spirit, which surely is a matter of the heart, but it actually takes us a step into the practically gritty details of life that maybe we'd be more comfortable not taking, if we're honest. So who are these poor people he's talking about? Is he talking about the poor in general, like all the poor people who have ever lived? Just look at verse 20, if you have your Bible open. Look at who he's talking to. He says, looking at his disciples. So what he's saying is directed to his disciples. And then notice further down in verse 32, that the people, sorry, 22. In verse 22, the people that are rejected are rejected, why? Because of the Son of Man. And what this tells us, he's, he's not talking about the poor in general, He's talking about poor disciples. He's talking about those poor who have 
identified with him. They've given their allegiance to him and are his followers. Because let's be honest, there's nothing fortunate about being poor, right? There's nothing fortunate about that. And Jesus isn't saying, oh, isn't, just, isn't it just like a wonderful thing to be miserable? No, Jesus isn't cruel. He's not insensitive to human suffering. He's not patronizing people who are in the most miserable circumstances saying, hey, just turn that frown upside down because you're blessed. It's not what he's doing. There's nothing fortunate about being poor except for this, that Jesus is here for them and that he's come to bring them good news. Do you hear me? There's nothing fortunate about being poor except that in Luke's gospel, we are seeing a Jesus who is here for them and he's bringing them good news. Remember his manifesto in chapter four, verse 18. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And what makes the poor fortunate is the fact that the good news of the kingdom is for them. And Jesus is announcing it to them. And so what's actually happening here in Jesus' word is that he's not just naming the reality of blessing, he's actually bestowing and accomplishing it. In light of who Jesus is and what he's here to do, when he says, blessed are the poor, he is making that happen because God's word is performative, is it not? God's word does something. God is a God who gives life to the dead and he calls things that are not as though they were. That is our God. So the poor are not blessed generally and all the time, but specifically through Jesus and the good news that he brings. Are you with me? Okay. Jesus' words have the power to redeem miserable circumstances because through them we hear the good news of God's unconditional love for us which has nothing to do with our status, our merit, our beauty, our power, or influence. It has everything to do with God and his love for us. But notice that he's saying this in the presence of would-be disciples. Remember the crowds that are gathered around him, right? These are the inquisitive listeners. They're the spiritually curious. They're the peasant masses of a conquered people under the Roman Empire. And Jesus invites them to find that they too can be important players in God's kingdom. Let's look at the woes now. You probably noticed each blessing has a contrasting woe. Woe to you who are rich, to you who are well-fed now, to you who laugh now, to you when everyone speaks well of you. What does woe mean? That's not a word you used this past week, right? What does that mean? This is not a curse. This is not Jesus wishing bad things on these people. This is not Jesus saying that it's bad to be rich or it's bad when someone speaks well of you or it's bad to be satisfied. 
He's not saying that these people can't enter the kingdom. But the word woe is a warning. It's a warning with a note of lament because Jesus is bringing the kingdom and he wants everyone to sit with him at the table. And he doesn't want people to miss out on that kingdom and what he's doing here is he's lamenting a condition that might lead people to miss out, okay? He's lamenting a condition that might lead people to miss out. Just as the blessings name this present condition of emptiness, the woes name a present condition of fullness, that the rich have received their comfort. People, they're well-fed now, they laugh now, they're popular and important now. And just as there was that reversal uh, for the poor in the kingdom, there will be a future reversal for the rich who find themselves outside of the kingdom. They'll go hungry and they'll mourn and they'll weep. So what's at the heart of this warning? The warning is this, that being rich and comfortable can mess with our minds, okay? Being rich and comfortable can mess with our minds. First of all, it can make us short-sighted, right? Like Jesus is casting a reality uh, where the future really matters. And, and comfort and, and wealth has a way of, can make us really focused on the present moment, as if the present moment is what ultimately matters. It can make us near-sighted. It can give us a false sense of control, right? Because wealth does give us an amount of choice and control over our lives. You might not have, have, think, have thought about that, but most of us in this room have control over where we live. We have control over where our, our kids, kids could go to school. We have control over what kind of food we eat. You know, we have a car, so, you know, we don't like the grocery store in our neighborhood because it doesn't really have good produce, so I can drive to a place that does, right? This choice that wealth brings us. And, and that's good. But having that choice can also create the illusion that we have control over our lives in an ultimate sense. It's the sentiment that William Ernest Henley expressed in his poem Invictus. Listen to this. You've heard this before. The last uh, stanza of the poem uh, is this conclusion that brings the whole thing home. He says, it matters not how straight the gate, that's narrow the gate, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Doesn't that just sum up the spirit of the age? And the, right, it doesn't matter who it is that's set against you. You can push through. You can do anything. You're in control of your life. I mean, that's the message of 90% of the pop songs being written today. <laughs> and it's a view that is so compelling and alluring but that makes it all the more tragic because it's completely false. It's completely false. 
And there are times in life when the reality of our lack of control gets exposed, aren't there? Right? When tragedy strikes, a sudden death in the family, a devastating car accident, and that illusion of control, it, it crumbles pretty quick, doesn't it? And if we apply that mentality that I am the captain of my soul to, to spirituality and to religion, and you know, you can baptize that in Christian language for sure. People do it all the time. Here's what you get. You get a religion that says try hard. Be a good person. Go to church every Sunday. You can do it. And that's then going to compel God to give you your dues. And he's going to give you a ticket to the good place. But here's the verdict. The verdict of the gospel says this. That no one is righteous. Not even one. Romans 3.23, Paul says so clearly, he says, all have sinned. You know what that word in the Greek is, all? It's the word all. It's all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one's right, heart is right before God. And, and, and listen, it's, it's not to say that there's not goodness in us, but it's to say that even our best deeds are tainted by selfishness and pride. That's what we mean when, when we talk about depravity. Have you ever heard that word before, depravity? How does it make you feel? <laughs> Don't feel good about that word, right? It's often seen as this heavy-handed word that condemns everything humans do and all that they are as evil. And, and we, we think that depravity means that God doesn't love you, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Depravity doesn't mean that everything you are is bad. It doesn't mean that everything you do is bad. It means that nothing you do is pure. It means that every part of us has been touched by sin and twisted by sin. And that nothing we do is 100% free of the evil that has infected us. Everything we do is mixture, right? So I could be doing the dishes like Sunday afternoon, I've just worked all morning and I get home, and this is not the case. Usually when I get home, the house is clean, but imagine it was messy and I went to the kitchen and I just started to serve my wife and my family and I was doing the dishes. And then that thought comes to mind, who's gonna see me doing this, right? What, what glory is gonna come to me? Am I getting points with my wife, right? And it, there's this self-interest even in the most selfless act. That's depravity. Because sin is a problem, and sin isn't just the bad things you do, but sin is a spiritual power that has infected our world. There's a glitch in the system, and no matter how much we think we're in control, no matter how much we think we can navigate ourselves in our world towards goodness, we actually can't. And let me just say, depravity is good news. You didn't think you'd hear that sentence today. Depravity is good news, and here's why. It tells us that God's love for us doesn't depend on us. 
It tells us that God doesn't love us because of any great quality in us or any good thing we've done. If that were true, if we viewed the love of God that way, we would always be insecure. Because everything about me, all, all my qualities, all my strengths, even the stuff that I've done, that can all be taken away. Right? All it takes is that one catastrophe in your life that takes away your ability, your wealth, your brain function, control over your body, your ability to do anything good. And you think, yeah, it's probably not going to happen, and you're probably right, but it could. You can lose everything. And the world can see you as the poor. You're useless. And the one thing that would still remain unchanged about you, even though you've lost everything, is that God loves you. And therefore, you wouldn't be useless, and you would be important. Because he's the God who loves the unlovely. Depravity means God's love doesn't depend on us. Uh, in Romans 5.8, just a few sentences after that verdict of uh, all being unrighteous, it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still unrighteous, while we were still unlovely and unlovable, Christ died for us. You see, the gospel shows us our depravity so that, so that it can show us the extravagant and unconditional love of God. He came to rescue depraved people because he loves them. He doesn't love them because they've managed to lift themselves up out of their depravity you aren't any more messed up than God already knows you are. And he still loves you. The truth is that we're not in control of our lives. We, we can't make anything up to God. We don't have the capacity to make peace with him. Um, we cannot pay the debt we owe him. And the solution to our need has to actually come from outside of us, right? It, 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 we only have one hope, and it has to come from outside of us. So here's how this, this relates to this issue of, of the poor and the rich. Charles Spurgeon said that the greatest unfitness for Christ is our own imaginary fitness. The greatest unfitness for Christ is our own imaginary fitness. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. And if I were to paraphrase these blessings and woes, here's my attempt. How fortunate are the poor because they need saving and they know it. Alas for the rich because they need saving but everything in their experience is telling them they're just fine. The message of the gospel is for everyone. The kingdom is for everyone but the poorer are in a sense nearer to trusting it because the circumstances of their lives have been deconstructing that illusion that, that we're in control. We only have one hope, and it's Jesus and his cross. And the way we lay hold of that hope is actually through the acknowledgement of our depravity, of our emptiness, and of our need. 
It's expressed beautifully in, in the hymn, Rock of Ages, where it says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. It's a whole lot easier for someone who's poor to say, unless you do this for me, Jesus, I am done for. So how does this apply for us today? I just want to quickly look at three ways um, this text applies to us. Um, so first of all, that the church is to be a people that values the poor. Jesus valued the poor, God values the poor all through the Bible, and we also need to be people who value the poor. And you might object this morning. You might say, Andrew, you just said that Jesus gives these blessings to Christians, essentially. So we don't need to care for the poor in general, but only for poor Christians, right? And I just have to say two things to that. Is every poor person and every person, period, is a would-be disciple of Christ. And it's not our job to decide who's in and who's out. And Jesus actually had the harshest words to say to those kinds of people. Our job is to share Christ, allowing his spirit to form his character in us so that we are welcoming people with his love into the good news that he died for them. Second of all, if you want to go the route, which is really a self-righteous route, of saying we don't have to care for those people because they're not us, you would be surprised to know how many of the poor people in the city profess faith in Christ. When I was in seminary, I worked at Toronto Alliance Church with our community night ministry. We did uh, a ministry for people involved in the street, a meal, worship, and dinner, and you get to know people. And I was amazed as I sat and just got to know people. I would say a conservative estimate, 75% of the people I would have a meal with professed faith in Christ? Was there a slew, a whole host of issues in their life of addiction, mental illness, trauma, and deep brokenness? Absolutely, but along with it, a profession of faith in Christ. So many of the poor in our city are our brothers and sisters. We just don't know it, maybe because we haven't gotten close enough to find out. Secondly, this should lead to a willingness among Christians to become poor, a willingness to become poor. Not saying that every one of us needs to, to, to get rid of everything we have, but to be willing when it comes to choosing allegiance to Christ and my wealth and my comfort, I'm gonna choose allegiance to Christ, to be willing to make that choice. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and would-be disciples. And could it be that he's preparing them for something that's going to come? Because in Jesus' day, people could expect to lose everything they had because of their faith in Christ. To be cast out of the synagogue, abandoned by their family. And let me just say, that's not just back then, that's today. Last Sunday, we heard from Rebecca and her story of her and her siblings fleeing from Iran because of their faith and for six years being uh, in uh, in transition and having nothing. They left comfort, they left family, they left power, they left prestige for the sake of Christ. I think this is also, this text is, is putting the question to us, are you, are you willing 
Are you willing? And lastly, joy. It's a bit misleading to say that there are no commands in this text because there is a command. It's in verse 23. Rejoice. Rejoice in that day. In what day? In the day you're rejected. In the day people hate you and call your name evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice. Suffering for the sake of the gospel isn't shameful. It's a cause for joy. Because in that moment you are blessed and you're being treated the same way as God's prophets were treated and that is a confirmation that you're being faithful to Jesus. It doesn't mean that we go out from here with this idea that we need to be belligerent Bible thumpers who stir up conflict everywhere we go because that's how I know I'll be opposed and I'll be faithful. No. Jesus speaks of it like it's gonna come. Even when you're the salt of the earth and you are meek as a lamb as he was, it's gonna come. Jesus himself was crucified. So he's saying, when it comes, it's not a cause for shame. It's not a cause to think that your identity and everything you are is being stripped away. It's a cause to rejoice because your identity is found in Christ. And Christ is, after all, the one who is rich, who became poor for us in order that he might make us rich. He's shown us mercy and his love has been poured into our hearts by his spirit. So may we be in people that embrace the great reversal that Jesus brings in his kingdom and may we follow him in the way of his cross. Amen? Amen. Let's close with some songs of worship.